A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. No matter the war being fought, it's a sad fact that war crimes take place all around the world. We need only look to Russia's offensive war in Ukraine to see how civilians are illegally targeted in an indiscriminate and disproportionate fashion, and how mass killings, rapes and torture become illegitimate tactics of war. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and needless to say, this episode contains content that some listeners may find upsetting. But it's an important episode, because with contemporary events in mind, I wanted to better understand the long history of war crimes, to define legally what constitutes a crime, and to find out how those who perpetrate such crimes are held to account. To help us with this, we have Professor Honor Hathaway back on the podcast. Honor is Professor of International Law at Yale Law School and a member of the Advisory Committee on International Law for the United States Department of State since 2005. As such, Honor is the perfect person to take us through this fascinating, if not troubling, history. Hi, Anna. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. So nice to be back with you. A lot has changed in the world since you were last on the podcast in July 2021, I think it was. In fact, then we spoke about when the world outlawed war back in the 1920s with the Kellogg-Briand Pact. But today, with war raging in Ukraine, I think that sadly seems like a million years ago, doesn't it? It certainly does. Yeah, a lot has changed since then and all kinds of questions raised about what it means to outlaw war and whether those changes have actually survived the last many months. Well, exactly. And that's why we wanted to get you back on was to talk about your legal expertise, your historical expertise around the laws of war, and to give us a bit of a a legal historical backdrop to the war crimes that have said to have been committed by Russia in Ukraine. So if we are going to focus in on war crimes, let's start with the basics. So where should we start in history? Yeah, you know, what's so interesting is that the idea of a war crime is actually a pretty new idea. For much of the history of war, as long as what you did kind of helped you in some way in the effort, you could do it. You could starve people, you could kill women and children, you could do all kinds of horrific things. And generally speaking, no one thought that there was anything wrong with that. I mean, this went along with the idea that war was a legal and legitimate means for resolving disputes and war was the way in which states righted wrongs. And so if what you were doing was righting a wrong, you could kind of do whatever was necessary to achieve that end. And so for much of history, there wasn't really this concept of of a war crime. There wasn't really such a thing. And in many ways, the emergence of idea of a war crime doesn't exactly coincide with the outlawry of war, but it comes pretty close. The ideas really begin to emerge roughly around the same time. So we're talking about that progressive era from the 1910s and 20s onwards. Was it directly in reaction to the First World War, or were there the rumblings of these ideas about what should constitute a war crime from even earlier periods? And Are we talking about the, the turn of the century towards the 1900s? The idea of a war crime first emerges in the late 1800s. So the term war crime first appeared in print in 1872. This was the first time that this idea that there could be such a thing as a war crime, that is a crime that's distinctive to promotion of war, kind of emerges. But there wasn't really 
a robust body of law to go along with it. It was just the beginnings of this idea. And it really does begin to emerge in much greater specificity and expansiveness in the early 1900s. So a little bit before World War I, this idea that there could be such a thing as a war crime, that there are certain actions that states shouldn't undertake in the course of war and that we should try to moderate the kinds of things that states were going to do in pursuit of their ends in war. That that really begins to emerge very late 1800s, early 1900s, when you begin to see kind of commentators begin to write about this and states begin to embrace the idea that there should be some limits on what they can do in the course of the war. Take us through some of these core examples. What were the first issues that were sought to be tackled? Was this about making war itself illegal? Was that, was, was that the, the first overarching thing? It's a pretty big slice to tackle to start with, but was that the main issue? If you can outlaw war, then you don't need to worry about all the other crimes that will happen in war. Or was there more of a micro-focusing in on some of the actual despicable things that do happen in war, such as the targeting of civilians? Yeah, so the first thing that they started to focus on was trying to tame the way in which war was being conducted rather than go after the idea of war as a legal and legitimate means of resolving disputes. So there was this kind of effort to try and address the brutality of war and particularly needless brutality. So instances where you're engaging in brutality that really is unnecessary. So Oppenheim, who was one of the sort of first writers to really detail this in a significant way, you know, talks about violations of recognized rules of warfare by enemy armed forces. He talks about hostilities committed by individuals um, who are not members of enemy armed forces. He talks about espionage and war treason. He talks about marauding acts. Those are sort of examples of war crimes that he discusses. And of course, there were in the late 1800s and early 1900s, some beginnings of an effort to adopt some rules about what the Hague Convention, so the earliest Hague Conventions are being adopted at that point to try and moderate kind of excessive brutality and war. But it doesn't look anything like the rules that we have today. And we have a much more expansive, detailed set of rules that govern the conduct of war today. And these rules really were sort of baby steps in that direction. But they sort of faced this challenge, which was that as long as war was the way in which states are resolving their disputes, and as long as war is the way in which you right wrongs, you can't put too many constraints on that. States have to be able to achieve their legal rights. And if the tool is war, if you constrain the way in which they can wage war, then they're not able to right legal wrongs. And so there was always a kind of limitation to how far states were willing to go as long as war was a legitimate means of resolving those disputes. It does seem strange, doesn't it, that war, the most heinous and brutal act that is sadly almost a guarantee of of all societies of humanity, at least to date, can have rules imposed upon it, that there are red lines that we as human beings agree, or at least most of us might agree, that, that shouldn't be crossed even when it comes to that act of war. And that can go to the type of weapons that are used through to those key moments in 20th century history where you seek to outlaw things like genocide in reaction to the Second World War. Maybe you can take us through some of those key moments over the last I know, 100 years or so, that have actually impacted the legal regime that we have today. What are the key moments that spearheaded the rules that we have within the system today? There's really one big bang moment, and that was the adoption of the four Geneva Conventions after World War II. Those are still the rules that generally govern our behavior even today. And in many cases, what they were doing was adopting and kind of restating rules that they had begun to develop earlier, but they kind of put it into this much more comprehensive framework. And states were willing to adopt much broader limitations on the conduct that they would engage in in the course of war. And I think it's not a total coincidence that you don't see like deep regulation of the conduct of war until after war has been outlawed. There's a little bit of an irony here, which is like, okay, you can't do this anymore. And now we have all these rules that govern how you would do it if you did it. 
all of a sudden you have these like very expansive detailed rules that govern how states can go to war with one another. But at the same time, they're no longer legally allowed to go to war with each other unless the Security Council has authorized it. But these rules really come into place almost coincident with the adoption of the United Nations Charter. So you get the Geneva Conventions, you get the United Nations Charter. There's four separate Geneva Conventions that address a wide range of issues and primarily focus on the conduct of war between states. So what we call international armed conflict. They have a little bit of rules about what happens in non-international armed conflict, but very little. There's an article called Common Article 3 that's called Common Article 3 because it's common to all the conventions that basically says, okay, in non-international armed conflicts, you have to be effectively kind of humane. There's sort of basic things you can't do. But it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about what that means. And that became an issue after the 9-11 attacks because, well, the United States in particular is using military force against non-state actor groups. There's a whole set of questions about what are the rules that govern those wars. We're not conceiving of ourselves as being at war with the states where these Nazi actor groups are located, but we're thinking of this as a war against al-Qaeda and the Taliban and associated forces, and what are the rules that govern that? So that may be a kind of a second wave of innovation in the law of war, is around expanding um, the rules governing wars between states and non-state actors and between non-state actors and one another. There had been some protocols, additional protocols adopted in the 1970s, additional protocol one, additional protocol two, that tried to fill in some of the gaps, both in international armed conflict and in non-international armed conflict. Not as many states adopted those additional protocols as had adopted the main conventions, and including the United States didn't adopt either of those additional protocols. And so you still had a lot of rules to try and work out after the 9-11 attacks, and you started having what we call transnational and non-international armed conflicts, which sounds like something of an oxymoron, but wars basically between states and non-state actors. So I think the Big Bang really is the adoption of the Geneva Conventions in the 1970s, kind of beginning to try and fill in some of the gaps left by those conventions and the additional protocols, and then you see a real expansion or an effort to try and expand and understand what the rules are going to be that govern non-state actor groups and states at war with non-state actor groups after the 9-11 attack. So those are probably the kind of key moments of innovation in this space. Although, of course, you know, there have been various points in between as well, but those are probably the big ones. And what I've always found fascinating about the UN Charter and the key points around the laws of war is that war is actually legal under certain circumstances. And you mentioned 9-11, and the US retaliation against Afghanistan and key groups within Afghanistan is deemed to be legal, and I believe is passed through the UN Security Council because it is seen as a war of self-defense. The United States has been attacked, and it needs to therefore defend itself, because it's that key stipulation of wars of self-defense that are the only way. Are they the only way that a state can legally wage war? Pretty much, yes. There are basically three situations in which a state can legally wage war. One is if the Security Council authorizes it under Chapter 7. So the Security Council votes it through under its Chapter 7 authority and says, yes, you know, states, you can go to war. So think of after Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, the Security Council resolution saying we can evict Iraq from Kuwait. A second basis is if the state in which you're using force consents to it. A state can say, we need some help dealing with these problems or, you know, we're at risk and we need assistance. So right now, for instance, U.S. operations in Iraq are assisting the Iraqi government with addressing various terrorist groups. And U.S. using force in the country right now is doing that with the consent of the host state. And then the third basis is self-defense. And that is specified in the United Nations Charter. Article 51 says that states can act in self-defense. They can act unilaterally in self-defense. They don't have to get anybody's permission. But it's fairly narrowly circumscribed. If you read the actual language of Article 51, it says that a state has to be subject to an armed attack in order to have a right of self-defense. Um, and there's other limitations, like you're supposed to file a letter, an art, what's called an Article 51 letter, explaining that you're responding in self-defense and why and all that. What has happened over the last many years is that 
the U.S. in particular, has adopted very expansive interpretations of the right of self-defense. I think, and I've argued in print, increasingly strained interpretations of the right of self-defense, crossing out the armed attack limitation in the United Nations Charter and kind of pretending that it's not really there and seeing self-defense as a justification for an awful lot that I think the authors of the UN Charter would not have considered to be self-defense as they intended it. And that does create a set of issues. Obviously, this is somewhat separate from the whole question of what is a war crime and how do we regulate conduct? Because one body of law is when can you use force? And that's this question of self-defense. And the other is, okay, you can use force, but what are the limits to how you can use that force? Can you kill civilians? What kinds of weapons can you use? What kinds of precautions do you have to take? But they're connected in obvious ways. You aren't going to have the second set of questions about how you conduct the war unless you're actually using force in the first place. So it is kind of the core question, this question of when force was permissible. And as the U.S. has adopted increasingly expansive interpretations of self-defense, the big shift was this idea that a state could act in self-defense against a non-state actor group. When the U.S. first proposed that idea after 9-11, lots of people thought it was crazy because they understood Article 51 is really being about using force against states, not against non-state actor groups. And, and the idea that that somehow permits you to use force against non-state actor groups didn't seem consistent with the charter. I would say now states have maybe given up on trying to contest that, but there's increasing ways in which the U.S. and some other states are continuing to expand self-defense, like adopting this idea of collective self-defense which allows you not only to defend yourself, but defend your partners. And as the U.S. is adopting more and more partners, working with partner, not just state forces, but non-state actor forces, using that as a kind of expanding your shield to include non-state actor groups that you're working with, it has the danger of undoing the fundamental rule of the system, which is you can't just decide to go to war on your own, that you have to get permission to use force. And we actually warned against this in the final chapter of the internationalists, because even then it was apparent that this was a problem and it has only continued to grow as a problem since then. So here's where you you very clearly make this distinction between the laws of war and the laws in war, and that's jus ab bellum and, and jus in bello. So these ideas of when it's legal to go to war and this idea of self-defense, preemptive self-defense or collective self-defense, that's within that jus ad bellum, the laws of war category. But let's dive into this jus in bello, laws in war category. Because another thing that surprises me when you look through these laws is it's actually in certain circumstances legal to kill but not to target civilians. That's correct as well, right? Yes. I mean, this is, you can't intentionally target civilians. But if you're targeting a military target and you happen to know that there are civilians near it, then a different set of rules kick in. So then the question is, whether the collateral damage is permissible. And this is based on a principle of what we call proportionality. So the idea is, is the harm to civilians proportionate to the value of the military target? So even if you know you're killing civilians, you're not targeting them, you're not meaning to kill them, you don't want to kill them, but you know that there are civilians near this military target that is an important military target. And the question is, can you still take the strike, even though you know some civilians are going to die? And what is the level of importance of the military target that is necessary in order to be able to kill some civilians? And there is something of a sliding scale. The more important the target, the more valuable the target, the more important the military purpose, the greater the amount of collateral damage that legally you're permitted to have. Now, This, of course, is an art, not a science. There's no tables in the Geneva Conventions that say this important means this many civilians and this important means this many civilians. So there are some tables, some insider working tables within different militaries, you know, what level of value a target is and what kind of civilian casualties they're willing to sustain given that. But yeah, you can knowingly kill civilians. 
you simply can't target them intentionally. But there, but there is a fine line there because you know that you're killing them even though you're not targeting them. That is one of the oddities and tragedies in many ways of war. You describe it as an oddity. As someone on the outside of all of this, it sounds bizarre that these conversations happen in real life about whether or not they can take out this target but it will kill five civilians. Is that proportionate? Is that discriminate? Does that work within international law? And then as a lawyer, it must be almost impossible to try and work these things out on a a subjective and not objective basis. And those sort of rulings and understandings can change given the severity of the situation on a day-by-day basis let alone over the decades maybe trying to hold people to account for what they did years later. It sounds like a legal nightmare, Honor. Yeah, it's extraordinarily challenging. And and that's not even the hardest part of it because we're talking about it as if you know for sure that those are civilians. But in many cases, you don't know if they're civilians or if they're somehow related to the combatant. You know, they're, they're involved with the combatants. You may not know exactly how many civilians are located near your target. You know, you may think that it's a military target and may turn out not to be, or you may think that there's no civilians and they may turn out to be civilians. Or you may think that they're civilians and may turn out to be combatants. So there's a lot of uncertainty in war necessarily. And, you know, you work on drones, so you know they can reduce uncertainty to some degree by observing these areas for long periods of time and try to see who's coming and going and how is it being used and are there women and children nearby and does it seem like the people who are known combatants are coming in and out and where are they coming from where are they going to so you can trace movements and get some clarity but they screw it up all the time they do get it wrong and so you have to take that into account when you're thinking about this like how sure am I that these are in fact combatants and if you look at the U.S. government's civilian casualty counts, and you look at human rights organizations' casualty counts, they're wildly different. And we don't know exactly why they're so wildly different, but we can guess. Uh, We have an educated guess as to why. And part of the reason is that many militaries, not just the U.S. government, make certain assumptions based on patterns of practice and behavior about whether somebody is a combatant. They don't necessarily know who that person is, but if they're coming and going from a particular site, they may assume that they're affiliated with that group, even though maybe they're not affiliated with a group. They're the delivery person, you know, they're bringing the groceries or whatever. They may not be part of the group, they may be supplying it. So there's a lot of assumptions that are made based on patterns of practice, what sometimes are called signature strikes. That can make this all even more complicated because even when you know, okay, there are five civilians and this is the level of the importance of the target, and we know that that target is actually there, do we take the strike? That's, that's actually a known quantity where you have much more information than I think typically those who are making these decisions in fact have. And you know this is why we get some of these tragic mistakes. Kunduz, medical facility, you know, you've got Médecins Sans Frontières sites being struck. You have the tragedy during the evacuation from Afghanistan uh, where the family was killed. You have these tragedies, not because people are trying to screw up, they're trying to do it right, but there's lots of uncertainties in war and people can make assumptions about the pattern that they're seeing and assume that that means that this person is combatant when, you know, they're not delivering anything problematic, they're picking up water. You know, I mean, they're doing something perfectly legal and there's nothing wrong with it. And there's nothing really particularly suspicious about it. But once you, you don't know that until after the strike is taken and and a lot of civilians have been killed. I think that's one of the tragedies of the war. And in many ways, that's why, again, we can talk about war crimes. And I think that law is really important. And we're seeing that being tested and addressed in Ukraine in particular, already a massive war crimes investigations going on. But in some ways, the fundamental crime, the fundamental problem is a decision to wage the war in the first place, you know, the decision to take these strikes in the first place. Because once you've started a war, civilian casualties are kind of inevitable and tragedy is just part and parcel of what it means to wage a war. We sometimes assume that because there are all these rules that regulate the conduct of war, that somehow like it's possible to take that tragedy out of the equation. But it just isn't. There are mistakes that are made. We may have lots of information and very precise weapons, but human beings are imperfect and the technology is imperfect. And as a result, real tragedies happen.
Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Well, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. So let's take all of these legal considerations about the laws of war and the laws in war and this history that we've discussed and and try and apply it a little. Are Putin's justifications for his war in Ukraine, are they legally based? Are they legally justified? If I recall correctly, Putin's justifications are in some ways that NATO has been the aggressor in this situation. And so Russia must defend its borders. And then there's lots of quite confusing historical analogies about Nazism in Ukraine and a threat to native Russian speakers. And I think one point in 2014, when we can really say this war first began, he was talking about his responsibility to protect the Russian speaking people in this region. So what are Putin's legal footings for his war in Ukraine? The short answer is he doesn't really have one, but you're absolutely right that he's been throwing a lot of things at the wall to see if anything will stick. And he's echoing our own language in the process. So he echoes this idea of, you know, humanitarian intervention, like he has to protect Russian speakers from oppression and persecution by Ukraine. He even accused Ukraine of engaging in genocide against Russian speakers. And that was actually what gave Ukraine the opening. This was a pretty brilliant move by Ukraine to bring a case against Russia in the International Court of Justice under the Genocide Convention, because they said, we've been accused of genocide. We want to clarify that we have not engaged in genocide and moreover that the war that Putin is waging on claims that we've engaged in genocide is perfectly illegal and that the ICJ should order him to stop. And the ICJ found that, in fact, there was no genocide going on by Ukraine against Russian speakers in Ukraine, that all of the claims were false 
and that any use of force for that purpose was illegitimate and ordering Putin to stop the war, which of course he didn't do. But so he has used this language absolutely of you know humanitarian intervention, of protection of civilians. He also, in his rambling speech on the eve of the war, which many saw as kind of a declaration of war, cited collective self-defense. And the claim that he was making was that there were these independent regions of Ukraine that he'd recognized as sort of these independent regions and that they had requested that he defend them from the Ukrainian government. And so he was acting in self-defense, collective self-defense of these independent regions. Now, again, there's no legal basis for this because these purportedly independent regions actually don't have any kind of international legal personality. They don't have a right of self-defense, even if they existed as independent entities, because they are not recognized sovereign entities. Only a state that is an independent state has a right under Article 51 to defend itself and to request that others defend it. So that was a bunch of hogwash. But, but he was kind of using this language that we use. And I think that's part of the reason we have to be so careful about our own, like, pressing the boundaries of the law, because the more we press the boundaries of the law, the more we invite others to press the boundaries of the law and to use this language in ways that's sloppy and inconsistent and incoherent. So he threw a bunch of these theories out there. None of them really got any purchase. Everyone saw them pretty much for what they were, which was just an effort to kind of muddy the waters. You could see from the vote in the United Nations, there was a vote on a resolution condemning the Russian intervention and 140 states voted against Russia and only four states joined Russia in voting against that condemnation. There were 35 states that abstained for a whole host of reasons. The consensus of the international community is this is an illegal war and there's no legitimate basis for Putin to be invading Ukraine. So let's be very clear, this this hasn't passed through the UN Security Council. This isn't an approved international act. This is most definitely Putin's illegal offensive war against Ukraine. Absolutely. And the only reason the Security Council didn't condemn it was that Russia was able to veto a resolution, attempted to condemn it. But after that, for the first time in several decades, they triggered what's called the Uniting for Peace resolution that then took a vote saying that we want to pass it to the General Assembly for their condemnation. And that's what led to the General Assembly resolution condemning Russia. So there's no legal basis for this. There hasn't been Security Council authorization. Obviously, Ukraine hasn't consented to the use of force. And there's no legitimate self-defense basis for Russia using force. And I will say that the kinds of reasons that Putin is at various points kind of thrown out there, this idea of like the expansion of NATO is a threat, having NATO on our borders is a threat, you know, having Ukraine join the EU is a threat, basically having an independent thinking Ukraine, democratic Ukraine on our borders is a threat. Those kinds of arguments are exactly why self-defense is a potentially kind of dangerous slippery slope if you allow it to expand at a certain point, any rise um, by your competitors is a threat. The whole idea of bounce of power politics was if you start getting too powerful, you now pose a threat to me, even though you've never made an intention to invade me. So I think the problem with self-defense, if it's not cabined, is that they can be used to kind of justify almost anything. And I, I think Putin's use of the term has really illustrated how uncapped the idea of self-defense can become, but he was going so overboard and using it in ways that were so unjustified that basically nobody would buy it. But the consensus of the world is that this is clearly an illegal war and, and there's nothing legitimate about, about it. Well, let's talk about the practice of this war, because we said that intention is an important thing here. You can kill civilians in war but not target them. But Russia has been accused of up to 21,000 alleged war crimes, according to the Ukrainian prosecutors. So what are we talking about here? Are we, are we saying that Russia is intentionally committing war crimes in Ukraine? Yeah, I think that there's no doubt that that's the case. It's a pattern of practice. And obviously, when there's a criminal case, you actually have to show you know individualized intent of the person who's being criminally prosecuted. So... I can't speak to that because I don't have the intelligence that would be necessary and the evidence and all that. 
But we can see from the fact that there's no legitimate military target around when a lot of these bombs are being dropped on known civilian locations with hundreds, if not thousands in some cases, of civilians potentially subject to harm. And it's not just happening once or twice or three times, but it's happening hundreds of times a day. So this is rampant war crimes. I mean, extraordinary in scale and effect and the number of people affected, the number of people killed, wounded, civilian objects destroyed, you know, schools, hospitals. I mean, it's hard to think of a case that's comparable in the post-World War II era where in an international armed conflict, so we've seen lots of horrific civil wars or what we call non-international armed conflicts where there's extensive war crimes being committed. But an international armed conflict, certainly nothing in Europe is comparable to this post-World War II. So I think the scale and the expansiveness of the war crimes and the fact that there just doesn't seem to be any effort at this point even to try to rein things in. I mean, they're hitting so many facilities that are so obviously not military facilities There can't but be intent, let's put it that way. Like you can't imagine a way in which these strikes would be happening over and over and over and over again against purely civilian targets. At a certain point, it's obvious that these are not mistakes, but these are intentional and they know what they're doing. But to try and frame this into some sort of historical analogy, could we say this is tantamount to firebombing or morale bombing, I suppose, is the best way of thinking about it, trying to target the morale of civilians so that you reduce their war-waging capacity, you put pressure on the politicians, or you encourage the population to put pressure on the politicians to end the war. Is that the kind of way we can think about Russia's bombing campaign? Yeah, but so interesting about that is that's a completely old world order mindset. That is how they thought about this in the world in which war was legal, legitimate, and might makes right. Their thinking was go after the civilians because, you know, you want to end the war quickly. Like the best way to do it is like end the source of support for the government, for the regime, for the city, whatever you're trying to to undermine. And, you know, sometimes the fastest and best way to do that is just target all the civilians and kill a bunch of them. And in the New World Order, we first of all, we outlawed aggressive war. <laughs> and second of all, we adopted expansive rules that govern the conduct of those wars if they did happen. And so Putin's acting as if like none of that ever happened. You know, he's acting as if war was not outlawed. He's acting as if the Geneva Conventions were never adopted. His language even is like so old world order. It's really extraordinary. When you, you see how he talks about this, he is thinking about this as somebody would 150 years ago, not as somebody would in 2022. Well, this isn't the only crime that Russia has been accused of. Russian soldiers have been accused of killing civilians, torturing and raping civilians, up to two or 300 reports of crimes every single day. And then there are mass graves that have been discovered in the towns outside the capital, Kiev, during that period when Russia seized those towns. So we're talking about Butcher or Borodyanka, these places that have seen some horrific accounts and really just quite troubling and disturbing instances of crimes against civilians. So with all of that in mind, Honor, how can we possibly see any route in the future to holding Russia to account for these crimes? You're exactly right about this. The scale, the brutality for a modern army to be engaging in these kinds of war crimes in 2022 is pretty extraordinary. And most people would not have believed it was possible. Although I will say that Putin is kind of using a playbook he developed in Syria. I mean, that a lot of these bombing campaigns, a lot of the things that are happening are things that have been happening for a while now. They've just been happening in places that, you know, we haven't paid as much attention to and where the war itself is not illegal because he is acting with the consent of Assad. Now, he's committing all kinds of war crimes, but it's not a crime of aggression. And so there is this shock the consciousness element to what's happening in Ukraine right now. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, much of these horrific acts against civilians, torture, etc., you know, it's been happening for over a decade in Syria. So the question of accountability is a really important one. And there's a number of answers to that question. So one answer is there's already investigations happening in the domestic courts, thousands of war crimes investigations happening um, in domestic courts. And 
the prosecutor who's just been relieved of her job um, for reasons I don't entirely understand. Um, I think because she had a somewhat different vision than does the president about addressing some internal dissent within the government. But she had initiated thousands of war crimes prosecutions, and I assume her successor is going to be taking those up. Um, so there's a number of war crimes prosecutions, already one conviction, you know, so that process is going to be happening. And that's probably going to be for very low level soldiers. I would guess that that's going to be the main way in which they're going to be prosecuted is through the domestic courts. The second way in which these prosecutions can happen is through an international court. And the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide taking place in Ukraine because Ukraine, back in 2014, gave the International Criminal Court jurisdiction over crimes that are happening in Ukraine beginning in 2013, I think. And that continues to exist today. So even though Ukraine is not a party to the International Criminal Court, it's sort of given jurisdiction to the court. So the International Criminal Court has already started investigations of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. I imagine that they are going to focus their attention on kind of leadership crimes, that they're more likely to go after people who are higher level, not sort of ordinary foot soldiers. But that really is something that's going to have to be worked out between the Ukrainian government and the International Criminal Court, because the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction only over crimes that have not been adequately investigated and prosecuted by the domestic legal system. And so if Ukraine wants to keep those cases, it can. I think that it, particularly for leadership crimes, for members higher up, it probably is going to want to rely on the International Criminal Court, both because those are going to be more complex, more weighty cases, but also because you might run into some immunity issues with higher up officials that don't apply in the international courts. But that's still to be seen. Right now, they're still in the investigation stage. Now, there's a third question, which is, how do we prosecute the crime of aggression. So the crime of aggression goes back to that USAD Bellum question, the sort of, is the war itself legal? And in many ways, that's kind of the parent crime of all of this, because you wouldn't have any of these war crimes. You wouldn't have potential genocide. You wouldn't have crimes against humanity if you didn't have the war in the first place. So the illegal waging of the war is in many ways the crime, the sort of supreme crime of them all. Now, what the problem is, is that while the International Criminal Court does have within its statute the crime of aggression. In this case, it can't prosecute it because the way the crime of aggression was written into the Rome Statute when it was revised to include the crime of aggression and adopted a detailed definition, they provided that it could not be brought against a state that is not party to the Rome Statute, so that's not voluntarily joined the International Criminal Court. And of course, Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute. And so even though Ukraine can give jurisdiction over all the rest of the crimes, to the court, it can't give jurisdiction over the crime of aggression to the ICC just based on this specific kind of weird jurisdictional loophole that ironically the United States really argued hard for, which is this one of these tragedies. <laughs> the impulse is so much like, let's make sure that this could never affect us in any way, shape or form. And not enough thinking about like, maybe there's some instances in which we'd want this court to be able to prosecute these crimes. Like maybe we want an international court that could try the crime of aggression, but unfortunately we don't have that. And so the question is going to be whether there's going to be creation of a special court for trying the crime of aggression. And I've written and advocated for creation of a special court, and I would recommend doing it through the United Nations, um, through an agreement between the United Nations and Ukraine to stand up a special court for the sole purpose of trying the crime of aggression, which is outside the jurisdiction of the ICC. And the reason for that is I think the UN is the right place to do it because you want an international body that has legitimacy to be able to set this court up. And it's the United Nations Charter that's been violated, and the United Nations has already condemned that violation, and it seems appropriate for the United Nations to be the one that sort of sets up an international court to respond to that violation. So I'm hopeful that that will continue to move forward. There's lots of other efforts underway. People are talking about doing it as an ad hoc court. Some talk about doing it through European institutions. Some talk about doing it as a domestic sub-court within the domestic system. I actually think doing it within the domestic system for lots of reasons is a mistake. The main one 
being that the Ukrainian constitution seems to prohibit it, but the other being that the crime of aggression is a leadership crime. So the people you're going to be going after are going to tend to be higher level officials. And there are international immunity rules that will apply in a domestic court that wouldn't apply in an international court. So we'll see where this all shakes out. There's a lot of diplomacy and politics. It's not just law. It's obviously more politics and diplomacy than it is anything else at this point. And really, in the end, it's going to be up to Ukraine to decide which direction it wants to go. How does it want to do these prosecutions? Which of these approaches does it want to endorse? Because nothing's going to work without Ukraine being behind it. Ultimately, they're in the driver's seat. And I think they haven't quite figured out yet exactly how they want to resolve this issue. I think they want it to be fast. And unfortunately, international justice is just not that fast. They're frustrated by the fact that this could take years. And, you know, they'd really rather it not. But unfortunately, for it have legitimacy and to be seen as consistent with international human rights and principles of justice and legitimacy, fast is probably not a very realistic option that if you want it to be done right, you're going to have to take your time and do it right. I think that they will probably eventually come around to that conclusion, but they've got a lot of other things on their mind right now. So what we're seeing realistically is potentially years, if not decades, until any sort of judgment is reached. And and is it fair to say that you're not going to see Putin in a dock anytime soon? Well, this is obviously the kind of big question, because in the end, it seems like Putin really is the one who pulled the trigger himself. You know, I mean, this was really Putin's war. It seems that many of the people within the government were surprised by the decision to wage war in Ukraine. And so, you know, he's really the one supremely responsible. And it seems highly unlikely that we're going to see Putin in the dock anytime soon. I don't think that that's an argument against moving forward with these international justice mechanisms, because even if he's not in the dock, you can indict him, you can collect evidence, you can issue an arrest warrant, you can freeze his assets. There's a lot that you can do and make it impossible for him to travel, to go to international conferences, to represent Russia abroad, you know, and he has hundreds of billions of dollars as one of the richest men in the world and assets all around the world. And this would be a kind of legal first step towards seizing and freezing those assets and using them potentially in the future for reparations for Ukraine. So even though, you know, a lot of people say, look, we're never going to see Putin in the dock. What's the point of this? You know, what? why even bother? And the answer is there's a lot you can do even if you don't see him in the dock. And history is long. It's possible that down the road you might see him in the dock. There are plenty of people who've been held responsible for their crimes who, you know, many would have said never would have would have stood trial. So uh, so I think, you know, we could be hopeful that that will happen. But even if it doesn't, there's many more people who, you know, There are generals who've been killed in the fighting in Ukraine, kind of unprecedented number of Russian generals who've been killed. And so close enough to the fighting to be killed by these relatively short range weapons that Ukraine has. They're close enough to be captured. And many of those folks could be held responsible for war crimes. They could be held responsible potentially for crime of aggression if they've been involved in planning these crimes. So these international justice mechanisms, I think, are going to have a lot of work to do. I think they aren't going to move real fast. That's international justice doesn't move real fast. But over time, I think we're going to see important development of these legal principles. And in the end, the audience really is history. The audience for this is the international legal order of the future. You know, And, and really what stands here is the question of do these rules, are they going to be enforced? Do they matter? Do we take them seriously? Are we going to do what's necessary to uphold them? Because it's not just the violation that matters. We're seeing these horrible violations, but it's the response to those violations that matter. It's not just whether they can break the law, but what happens when they break the law? What is the global response? How do we respond to what they've done? And part of that response is a criminal law response. And that's part of the message to anyone else out there who might want to wage a war of aggression against their neighbor, you know, that there will be consequences and that we actually take these principles seriously and that you might even personally be held liable and thrown in the dock and not be able to travel outside your own country for a very long time. And that's an important message to send because even if 
we aren't going to be able to stop Putin from waging this war. And I think, you know, the chances are that he's not going to be personally particularly dissuaded from continuing this war by any criminal indictment. We're not just thinking about Putin. We're thinking about leaders around the world now, and we're thinking about leaders around the world in the future who are also the ones who are paying attention and will be affected by what we as a global community do here. The eyes of history are watching, just like we're talking about these legal precedents set almost 100 years ago. What's being decided today and in the near future will really have an impact on how people are held accountable for war crimes in the decades to come. So, Anna, thank you so much for taking us through this broad, long history of war crimes, both in terms of waging war and what happens in war. Tell us, where can people learn more about this? Where can we read more of your work? Uh, That's so nice of you to ask. Um, And thank you for having me on. You can read my writing and the writing of many others on these matters on a blog called Just Security, a Just Security blog. Lots of writing by really smart people who know a lot about international law there. I've also written a fair bit in Foreign Affairs, which has had some really good snappy writing on the Ukraine. And then you look me up on on Twitter. I tweet out any of my recent writings. um, And I've been have been and will continue to be writing on this because it really is a pressing issue of the day. Well, Honor, thank you so much for your time. And as you know, you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.